David Hurley here, a son of Prelate Saskatchewan, just off Highway 32, seven miles east of Leader, Census Division 8, a German Catholic colony famous for its towering prairie sentinels, grain elevators to you city folk, a fact that's personal to me because my dad Alec ran the pioneer grain elevator in Prelate from the mid-40s through the 60s. We've been talking these last few weeks about just how important it is to digitally connect rural and remote Canadians and the work our presenting sponsor, TELUS, is doing to make that a reality. Since 2013, they've connected 282 rural and remote communities to high-speed internet via the TELUS fiber network, with another 50 being connected this year. They've expanded wireless LTE coverage of Indigenous communities to over 1,900 reserves in Canada. And this work is far from finished. Over the next five years, TELUS is committed to increasing their wireless service to an additional 3.5 million rural Canadians. Canada is a stronger country because of the people of our small places. That's a truth that both TELUS and our government share. And so it's the work they'll continue to do together in public-private partnerships that's critical to achieving 100% rural connectivity. And it's just part of TELUS's ongoing work to bridge digital divides so that all Canadians are connected to the technology and resources we need to thrive. You can learn more about it by going to connectingcanadaforgood.ca. All right, just before we get to today's pod, I want to give you Hurley Burleyites a heads up about a brand new video first podcast we've been working on here at Air Quotes Media Worldwide Headquarters. It's called Hurley Burley Through the Looking Glass, presented by TELUS. And it's not the hurly-burly you're used to. I'm not interviewing political figures or journalists. I'm taking viewers through the looking glass of a focus group boardroom, all done virtually, of course, and into the minds of four groups of your fellow Canadians, one black, one white, one indigenous, and one Asian. It's a multi-episode exploration of the issue of race in Canada. Our political and media class often likes to rally around the notion that diversity is our strength in this country, but how strong are we really? I'm your focus group moderator for what is a fragile and emotional exploration of a deeply complicated conversation with everyday Canadians from one coast to the other. More details to come in a couple of weeks, and I hope you tune in. All right, it's another Double Your Pleasure podcast for all you hurly burlyites today. And just before we get into the two-part pod, I'd like to shout out a couple of recent reviews we've gotten on the World Wide Web. Cole C. writes, The Hurley Burley is a must-listen. Deep insights into the political landscape of our times and laughs at the same time. A gift during COVID. Thank you, Cole C. We work hard to be the COVID gift you're looking for. And Billy... 174638 writes, It's good. I like your brevity, Billy174638. And please keep those reviews coming, folks. They help us out a lot. For part one today, we're going to do a deep dive into the BC election last week uh, and John Horgan's historic Orange Wave 55 seat majority with Mike McDonald. Mike is a brilliant guy and a good friend of mine for many years. We've been in many wars together. In this context, though, he's the former campaign manager and chief of staff to Premier Christy Clark. Currently, he's partner and chief strategy officer for Kirk & Company, one of the leading communications and public engagement firms in Canada, and a senior research associate at Polaris Strategic Insights. You can read all about what's on his political mind at rosedeer.blog. 
and Mike is the best and most astute analyst of BC politics I know, and I'm very grateful for him coming on. For part two, we'll bring on our political panel, Scott Reed and Jenny Byrne. We'll pick up a little bit on the BC election, and we'll devote the rest of our time to topics and stories spurred on by your Twitter suggestions over the course of the last week. So, Mike McDonald, I want to thank you for joining us all the way from beautiful British Columbia on the Hurley Burley. My pleasure, David. Thanks for the invitation. No, it's it's great that you accepted. So, I ask everybody, Mike, how are you, and how is your COVID experience going? Uh, I've had a good pandemic. Uh, we've <laughs> we uh, been cooped up uh, for the first few months at home uh, with my six year old and you know, my wife and we were, you know, thought we would kill each other in our two bedroom townhouse, but it actually, uh, we managed to enjoy each other's company, which was nice. And back to work half time doing a hybrid model, which, uh, we might see more of in the future once the pandemic's over, I think. Right. So you're actually in your office and regularly working out of your office? About two days a week. Yeah. And uh, our staff is split shifts, so half our staff go in part of the week, half go in the other part of the week. So, um, you know, I think it's a good blend. And, uh, you know, you still need collaboration to some extent, especially in our type of business we're in. But, you know, we have to adjust to reality as well. Right. It feels more open than the experience in Ontario or Quebec. Like yeah, we've been a little bit we've been fortunate out here. It hasn't. Uh, we haven't had the numbers out here in British Columbia compared to some other jurisdictions. Uh, you know, it, it kind of ebbs and flows a little bit. But um, you know, there's a lot of confidence in uh, Chief Medical Officer um, Bonnie Henry, and you know, people yeah. have been behaving themselves. I think for the most part, um, and uh, you know, it never really did take off in the first place out here. So, you know, it did spike up a little bit over you know, over the summer briefly, but, you know, it's, our numbers are pretty low, certainly in terms of hospitalization, that's for sure. Right. And where I am right now in Denholm, Quebec, it, we're having our first snowstorm of the year. What is the weather like in Vancouver this morning? Uh, I'm not familiar with snow um, <laughs> being from Vancouver, uh, but we're, <laughs> well, we've, it's a night, we've had a, we had a beautiful fall, day yesterday beautiful sunny day uh i was out in a pumpkin patch and uh i think i saw more orange on saturday night actually than i did in the pumpkin patch on sunday but uh it was uh, <laughs> a lot of orange the rain is yet to so listen that was that was a super huge win for john horgan and the mm-hmm. ndp um what was their strategy for this campaign? Well, it what did they run on and how did it work for them? Well, it was a historic win. And as you know, the NDP have, you know, they've lost more than they've won in terms of elections in British Columbia. Uh, I would say since 1941, every election has been about whether, you know, the socialist hordes will uh, storm the gates or not. And uh, that's been the, you know, the polarizing dynamic of BC politics. And most of the time, quote unquote, free enterprise governments have prevailed. Uh, so to win, they didn't technically win the last election, but they did take power um, to win back-to-back mandates. Um, they've only done that once before. They've never done it with the same guy twice. Because when they ran uh, back-to-back governments in the 90s, they had a midterm coup um, and Glenn Clark took over. So 
Um, so for them, this is this is a big win. It's a big win for any party that would win 55 out of 87 seats. And, you know, unquestionably, uh, this election would not be happening if we're not for COVID. Um, when you get a, uh, basically six months of uncritical coverage uh, and you dominate the news every day with your health minister and to the premier took had taken a step back, but he still, you know, obviously benefited from it. Um, the, the polling divide, the leadership gap just, just widened, uh, hugely over the last six months. And I think it was just too tantalizing for them to pass up this opportunity to go to the polls. And so they just rode that wave or did they have a particular approach to the campaign? Cause we often talk on the political panel about how you don't get rewarded for what you've done in the past. It's mm -hmm. always about what you're going to do in the future. So how did they take the COVID, their story of COVID management and turn it into a story about the next four years? Well, I think uh, the health minister, Adrian Dix, is, um, comes across as a very competent minister. And uh, so uh, the government looked like it really had its act together um, from the get-go of the pandemic. Um, Horgan was, Premier Horgan was already receiving uh, a lot of credit for his approach over the last three years, you'd often hear a lot of BC Liberals saying, yeah, you know, I think he's doing a pretty good job. You know, his approval ratings were good. So, I, you know, they were coming into September with a lot of capital in the bank. Um, you know, no one expected an election in September. Uh, even as of like a week after Labor Day, I don't think anyone seriously believed it. You know, the media didn't seriously believe it. The Liberals didn't seriously believe it. And so the element of surprise, I think, was a, was a big factor. I mean, it had been rumored for a while, and people will argue that the tea leaves were there and everything, but, but I think calling an election in the, in the middle of the pandemic, that was a year early, that there was fixed election legislation uh, that they themselves had amended to move the date to October 2021. They had a signed deal with the Greens to not have the election before October 2021, and they went for it. And so... You know, when you ask about approach, I think the approach was, we can win this thing, we're going to do it. And, you know, right. they seize the opportunity. So the NDP and BC lost an election in 2013 mm. that probably they shouldn't have lost. Um, and, well, they had, a, they had a huge lead, which they blew. Mm. And the mm -hmm. victory, their defeat was... Very, very surprising when it ultimately happened because they'd had a mm -hmm. big lead for a long time. The government had had to change its leader because it was so unpopular. And they ran a campaign that caused a lot of soul-searching within their own organization about how they run campaigns. What have the BC NDP learned since 2013? Well, I think in 2013, um, one of the things that was a problem for them in hindsight, I would say, is is overconfidence. Uh, the public polls were terrible for uh, Premier Clark. Um, you know, when we, you know, as you know, I ran our leadership campaign, and when we uh, took power in 2011, things were pretty good. She was a fresh face. Um, and then the first year of government, the, you know, the wheels started falling off the bus. And, you know, a year later, she's, you know, in the public polls anyways, was 20, 25 points behind and I think that lulled a lot of observers into 
a narrative that there's no chance she could win the election. But she's Christy Clark, and um, she has, you know, an incredibly uh, powerful engine. You know, she uh, magnetic personality, but behind the team had assembled a lot of really smart people who figured out how to how to bring it back. And Dix, Adrian Dix, at that time was, um, you know, he had some baggage from from before. He he was not a, a warm personality. Um, so the leadership contrast was favorable uh, by the time we got to the rip period. It, you know, when the when the spotlight's on for twenty eight days. So, yeah, I think the NDP were probably too cautious in that campaign. They kind of uh, issued um, negative ads as well. And I think if they'd gone if they'd gone hard and gone negative, that that might have done the trick. So, so I think maybe what they learned. I'm just going to guess here is. Um, is to go for the jugular. Um, let's not mess around here. Um, I think the 2017 election under Horgan and uh, led by Bob Dewar and, and others for the NDP really did not mess around. Like they, they made some decisive moves based on instinct uh, in the heat of the moment that really paid off for them. And, you know, they've done since then, you know, they've, you know, they've really demonstrated their their uh, understanding of what it takes to stay in government and, and to win. Well, that may be important because they haven't really in the country had a professional political organization for a while. You know, they used to have things mm -hmm. in Saskatchewan that were pretty formidable and sometimes in BC they've had them and sometimes in Ontario. But, uh, you know, federally they've really been... I think showing the lack of um, the lack of campaign talent that they have and the lack of organization that mm -hmm. they have uh, in that party. So maybe BC will become sort of a ground floor for them. Yeah, and I think a lot of provincial NDPers would would say that you know create some distance between them and the federal NDP. You know, uh, I'm not. I mean, there are certainly some a lot of crossover, but you know, it's a very different thing. You know, they're contending for power. Um, you know, they have their, their eyes on 40, 45% of the vote out here. You know, they're not as interested in the national dynamic. They know they're not going to form power. Um, what did happen though, following the 2013 election, when, uh, Rachel Notley was elected in 2015, you know, there was a migration, uh, to Alberta for some of the key people. And around that time, um, you know, it didn't appear that the BC NDP were really going anywhere around 2015. And uh, for instance, uh, Premier Horgan's chief of staff had left to go to Alberta. Uh, so at that point, you know, they shook it up. Bob Dewar came in from Manitoba. And uh, I think they got focused. And one of the defining things leading into the 2017 campaign was the, the housing market went crazy in the lower mainland. And the BC Liberals got on the wrong side of the affordability crisis here. And that, that really destabilized... Um, public opinion in the Lower Mainland particularly. And, uh, you know, the NDP seized on that. And the results this election on Saturday night kind of demonstrate that, you know, they've continued that trajectory in the Lower Mainland, um, taking a region that the BC Liberals used to win pretty comfortably, and now the NDP absolutely dominated. The last election, the Liberals actually won the popular vote. And... Uh, it was a tie, basically, almost, almost tie, okay. perfectly a tie. Yeah. 
you have lots of credibility in saying you didn't lose the election, right? Mm. This yeah. time, they decisively lost the election. They got blown out three yes. years later. So what yeah. happened in the interim? Well, you know, um, well, there's a leadership race, of course. And um, it was a, you know, it was a funny leadership race. I mean, there were six candidates and some former cabinet ministers. and But there was no clear, you know, every candidate had some flaws. Let's put it that way. Um and so Wilkinson had the perfect storm of math and, you know, second choices where he only had about 18% of the votes on the first ballot. And he found a way to get to, you know, 52% on the fourth or fifth ballot. And it, much the same way as Joe Clark and Stefan Dion and, you know, some of the Bob Skelly here in, you know, British Columbia, former NDP leader. Sometimes when these leaders don't start with a strong base and they win, it's like, you know, how do you, you know, bring everyone behind you? Right. And uh, I don't, I, I don't think it really ever coalesced behind uh, Andrew Wilkinson. Now he got, he got off to a pretty good start. Uh, he fought the pro rep referendum out here and uh, people thought that it would pass. And, you know, he debated premier and did pretty well and the referendum failed. So that was seen as a, you know, a check mark for him. They went into a by-election in Nanaimo, which is a, uh, you know, a pretty historically good NDP seat. He uh, found an outstanding candidate. And, uh, you know, they came pretty close. They almost won it. And had they won that by-election, it probably would have been a general election um, soon to follow. But they didn't. And after that, you know, it felt like some of the air was let out of the, you know, out of the balloon. And, you know, it was hard to uh, generate momentum. I think the caucus and the party kind of settled into, well, this is going to go four years now. So let's just, uh, you know, we're plant, we're working towards 2021. And, you know, I think things were just generally flat. Fundraising was not, uh, fundraising was a real challenge here um, under the new rules and never really got going. But even as of last February, though, I would say that they were competitive. You know, I don't think the gap was that big um, in the polls. Uh, COVID really, uh, change things, but part, partly because the opposition, uh, you could say, did an honorable thing by working very closely with the government, kind of taking off the partisan gloves. The health critic worked very closely with the health minister and, you know, uh, the media, everybody was saying, isn't this nice? British Columbia is everyone's working together. Well, the opposition's role is to oppose and the opposition's role is to point things out and, and stay relevant. And uh, they basically disappeared um, over the summer, spring and summer. And so by the time you get to September, the polling gap's huge. The leadership gap is huge. Um, it's a tough situation no matter what, as you see in Ontario. I mean, look at Doug Ford. He's completely, his leadership numbers changed overnight practically. Completely. So that's a tough thing to contend with for an opposition party. And, and Andrew himself, Andrew Wilkinson, he uh, just hasn't, you know, he didn't connect. He, he didn't, um, he wasn't able to find that formula. He wasn't able to make, I think everyone was willing to say he's not Christy Clark, you know, and you could turn that into a good thing because Christy had a lot of, um, you know, she had a lot of negatives, you know, by the time she was finished. So he was starting with a fresh slate and, you know, he's a doctor and a lawyer and everyone knew he's a smart guy and he didn't have to try to be the guy that everyone wanted to have a beer with. But he didn't seem to capitalize on 
his positive uh, traits and uh, bring that behind, you know, his leadership. So by, you know, during the election campaign, it was just, he never really sunk into it. Well, he looked like a bit of a stiff from a distance. Um, but uh, is he too right wing as well? Well, actually, Andrew's historically a federal liberal. And okay. uh, he actually co-chaired Michael Gnarchev's campaign in BC. So you can take take from that as you will. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, he is a... He's a longtime federal liberal, or was. I'm not sure what he is today, but in the leadership campaign, his base was actually in the interior. He had a lot of strong MLAs uh, from the interior uh, and former ministers who supported him. He actually didn't do very well in the Lower Mainland, which um, you know may have been a, a signal there. But he, uh, you know, he leveraged what he could in the leadership race, and I think he had a certain stridency in the leadership race where he, he was willing to be the attack dog. And, you know, he went after his rivals uh, mercilessly and it worked. And I think he he showed that during the pro rep campaign as well, but I didn't see that um, least effectively in the general election or in the lead up to it. Um, in fact, I think some of his, you know, some of his commentary kind of fell flat. Sometimes he maybe went a bit far sometimes, but it just, there wasn't a consistent prosecution uh, of the NDP that seemed to work. Uh, so they were looking at this situation when the election is called, where COVID has dominated, they've played ball, the government has mm. huge positives, and the premier is extraordinarily well received, as perceived as most mm. premiers in the country are right now. How did they attempt to handle that? What was what appeared to be the liberal strategy for making up that ground? Well, the first thing that happened was I think there is a state of disbelief that the election was actually going to be called, and uh, the public were kind of cheesed off about it. Um, the media were giving the premier a very hard time, and you know I think when he actually called the election, it was pretty choppy waters for the NDP for the first three or four days heading into the weekend for sure. It was, you, you know, you normally don't write it up that way where you announce an election and then you hit, you, you hit a blizzard of negative press. Um, so, you know, the premier was not getting his message out about his agenda. Um, everyone just wanted to know, why did you call it? The, the backstory didn't add up. You know, they, they never did really come up with a story as a compelling reason why they called the election. Everyone understood Everyone understood why they called it. They wanted to win, but they didn't really have a public reason uh, to call it's it. It's amazing. They didn't even bother to figure that out before they did it. Well, they had some kind of <laughs> half-baked, um, you know, uh, they're blaming the Greens, actually, for not supporting legislation that happened in the summer. But, you know, the, the Green leader, Sonia Firstnode, had only been elected leader a week before, you know, I think on September 14th. They called the election on the 21st. So, like, it was, you know, it's a lesson to people about politics, right? It's like, here, these are our coalition partners. We're working together closely, you know, we're, isn't this, uh, you know, isn't this agreement great that we have? And then uh, out comes the knife. And so... Yeah, for anybody who's appalled by Trudeau's hardball behavior in the House last week, this is a lesson yeah. in true hardball behavior. Uh, right? this, this goes to my earlier point about these... 
learnings from 2013, right? It's like, let's not mess around if we can win. So I, I can only imagine that, you know, um, there would have been discussions over the summer between the Hawks and the Doves within the NDP and the Doves were probably saying there's a fixed selection date and, you know, we, you know, we can still win a year from now. Why would we go early? We're risking it. And the Hawks are probably like, we can take this guy. Um, so in that first week they hit the choppy waters and I think it, it looked a little wobbly, you know, it looked like, geez, you know, maybe they really misjudged here. Maybe, uh, they made a, a major miscalculation. And I, th I think they were a little bit on the ropes. Now, they probably factored that in. They probably thought they were going to encounter that to a degree and that they could tough it out. But I'm not sure they expected that level of um, you know, resistance. Um, so going into that first weekend, I think there was some optimism in the Liberals that uh, like this might be Wilkinson's best shot. Like it might be, He might have a better shot this year than next year. Um, and I think that was well-founded. But when that next week started, uh, the Liberals chose to announce um, a one-year elimination of the PST and then, a, uh, and then you know, it would scale up from there. And, you know, Big, I, huge I, announcement. Yeah, no, it certainly got everyone's attention. And, you know, I, I think um, I wasn't involved, but I, I think the thinking was um, no one knows who Andrew Wilkinson is, so let's put him on the map. Um, and position him where we want him positioned as, um, you know, uh, fighting for affordability and, you know, um, fighting to keep more money in people's pockets. You know, in hindsight, I think they were premature on doing a big policy announcement. I think they probably had more time to milk the snap election call uh, storyline a little bit more. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, um, But also in terms of the policy announcement itself, you know, I don't think you can look back and say it was successful. Like uh, they did not, they did not uh, get a, a rollout on it. It did not. You know, you do something like that where you're going to spend six billion dollars. You want to get like a week's worth of the events out of it. Like here's here's what this will do for this small business and so on. So on. they try. And to it do needs it, to be a defining issue in the campaign. Yeah, it needs it to become a defining issue in the campaign. It was not. Yeah, and I think it. Um, I think you know, traditionally in BC, um, the balanced budget has been a, a real dividing line. And, you know, going back to, you know, pre-2017, that if you weren't prepared to run a balanced budget, you'd failed a major test. And, and the NDP came to accept that. And the BC Liberals obviously had campaigned on that. Everyone knew this time that wasn't going to be the test. And uh, that no, there's no balanced budgets for the foreseeable future here. So let's not tie ourselves down. Like in 2017, the liberals, went, you know, we all had governmentitis and uh, we all were so concerned about the credit rating, very honorably so, frankly, and, and fiscal discipline that we were politically stupid. But in 2020, um, the shackles were off. And so, yeah, let's, you know, Let's go do a big tax cut because the deficit doesn't matter right now. And I, but I, I think voters weren't there. I think voters were like, is this really the right thing to do? Like some of the BC Liberal voters, I mean. And so I, I, I think they got something out of it with some audiences, but I don't think, I think it was a confusing signal for others. Um, and it clearly didn't work anyways.
Can you can you ex- expand on that and extrapolate on that a little bit? So, the last federal election was all about affordability. Mm-hmm. All the parties were trying to do was compete with each other on how they could find a way to lower the cost of living for people one way or another, or stretch their budgets. COVID has obviously had a huge impact on the political agenda and on the way mm-hmm. people see the role of government and on in society, etc. So an idea like the PST, which might have been in 2019 a great idea, um, in 2020 isn't such a great idea. What do you think it is about the pandemic and the, and the impact of the pandemic in our society that may have changed things like that? Well, you know, it might have been a, a question of degree. Because I think eliminating it, even if it was just for one year, might have just been a step too far. You know, I think the idea of affordability, I think the idea of lessening people's tax burden, especially in the middle class, I don't think anyone's talk, anyone wants to run a campaign on lowering the burden for the you know upper class. But for the lower middle classes, lower middle income earners, um, a package of affordability options probably will still be received well. I just think this particular instance, eliminating the PST, it didn't seem entirely credible. Um, now, I know that, you know, in politics, you have to be bold as well. And, you know, in 2017, the BC Liberals did have some affordability measures, but they were hard to explain. So this was very clear. Um, but in the final analysis, it didn't really work out. Now, the NDP defined affordability a little differently. They define it through $10 day daycare, uh, you know, renter supplements, that type of thing. They're very targeted towards their audiences. And, you know, the Liberals learned from that this time, and they embraced $10 day daycare, their version of it, um, this time. So, you know, it's affordability for who and how um, is the question. And for, uh, you know, for the BC Liberals, the, the tax cut didn't really connect um, in a way that uh, yeah, I think the NDP had connected in the past on affordability. There's probably a lot of federal liberals across Canada who watched that election and identified more with the NDP than the Liberal Party. What do you think mm-hmm. about that? Well, the BC Liberals have been evolving over the last number of elections. So, you know, very short history lesson. In 1991, the Socrates basically were vanquished and the Liberals came out of nowhere to uh, win official opposition. And at that time, uh, virtually all their seats were in the Lower Mainland in areas that were consistent with federal Liberal strength and a belt of kind of middle-class populist ridings heading into the Fraser Valley. And that was where, so when Gordon Campbell became leader in 1993, that's what he started with. And then he took his very strong brand as mayor of Vancouver and um, recruited a lot of SOCRED uh, apparatus, key people within the SOCREDs and uh, federal conservatives and other federal liberals. And they, you know, by 1996 came along, he almost won the election, but they were competitive in every region of the province, but they didn't dominate any region of the province. So the NDP at that time would win in the interior, the liberals would win more seats on the island, a few seats on the island anyways, and the, the suburbs were, a complete battleground. 2001, 
The NDP were vanquished completely. It was 77 to 2. The Liberals were elected everywhere. That was a one-off. Um, and we get to 2005 and three elections of kind of uh, a steady state emerge where the Liberals, um, you know, win the lower mainland every time the NDP dominate the island and the Liberals win most of the seats in the interior. When Christie came in, um, having more of a populist appeal, um, you know, and, and just other trends happening in urban British Columbia, she lost her seat in Vancouver. Uh, she lost, you know, there was another seat in Vancouver. She lost two seats in Victoria. Um, but she gained seats in the suburbs and she gained seats in the interior. So, you know, the, you know, kind of de-urbanized liberals a little bit and did well in the suburbs, but won out in the rural area. Uh, in 2017, lost more in the city and lost the suburbs, um, but strengthened in the interior. This election, the liberals held maybe 19 out of 20 seats in the interior but are down to nine or 10 of 49 in the lower mainland and didn't get a seat on the island. So, you know, the tide's been going out in lower mainland for, for a while now. And that's a big problem when you got 49 out of 87 seats. So the liberal party, which is, you know, we all know is uh, a, just a vehicle for the non NDP uh, forces. Doesn't look anything like a liberal party in terms of the electoral map, because its strength is in, the interior where there's no federal liberals. Um, in fact, it's almost identical to the federal conservative map in British Columbia now because the federal conservatives had, have had a very big problem themselves trying to win in Metro Vancouver. And now, um, you know, basically the BC liberals have the same problem. Now having said all that, um, you know, it doesn't take much to come back. Like basically the liberals lost, you know, gave five points to the NDP this time. You know, the NDP went up five, the Liberals went down five. Um, bring that back, and it, it's you're back to even again. So it's not a, you know, I don't think it's an apocalypse. <laughs> I would call it maybe a disaster, but I wouldn't call it an apocalypse. And they have to, they have to figure that out. You know, they have to figure out where that appeal is going to be, and and um, not miss, you know. It, it might be easy to misinterpret the results. Um, so they, they have to take time to, to breathe. They have to take time to just let us sink in, evaluate it and not, you know, they don't want to wait, you know, don't want to procrastinate in terms of renewing the party. That's for sure. But they need to figure out what they are, who, you know, who's their voter coalition and what they're not. So that kind of thinking tends to happen around a new leader. Mm -hmm. who, I mean, that, that kind of uh, understanding what we are as a party doesn't normally happen as an organic exercise. It normally happens through a leadership mm -hmm. process, a leadership change process. Mm -hmm. uh, who's going to, but I mean, these things become self-fulfilling prophecies in that the base of the party is now very small C conservative, very non-urban, non-big urban anyway. So these things become reinforcing that will lead the party to take policy positions that will reinforce that, not move against that. How does the coalition get reimagined in a way that makes well, it competitive? Yeah. I mean, I think there's some obvious things that they have to strengthen. Um, there's first of all, 
you know, the caucus is old. It was old going into the election, and um, they did not. I mean, they did elect one guy under 40, um, and that's it. Um, so they've got to get younger people. I mean, in, 19, in the 1990s, uh, I mean, I was a lot younger at the time. So, you know, I, everyone was old to me. But in, <laughs> in, in hindsight, you know, Gordon Campbell was 45 when he took the party over. Um, and a lot of the people that were the stars of the show were in their late 20s and their 30s. Um, Christy Clark, Gary Collins, Mike DeYoung, um, and so Jeff Plant, you know, there there's a lot of really young, vital, it was a really a new generation. It really set themselves apart from the Silk Rits. Um, it was a new offering. And, you know, today's BC Liberals, um, they need to get there. They need to get to a, a younger crowd, but also more diverse crowd. Um, the caucus is not very diverse. And, and then they have to connect with uh, you know, urban and suburban communities about that they understand uh, what those challenges are. Uh, you know, uh, the challenge for the caucus, two-thirds from the interior, you know, the interior is not a monolith. Uh, you know, Kelowna, Kamloops, Prince George, these are big cities, you know. I mean, they're, they've got universities. They've, you know, there's, you know, it's not like they're, you know, sitting down in the middle of the bush or something like that. Like, it's not like the interior can't relate to the lower mainland. Um, right. But the, the interior caucus does have, in my opinion, has a responsibility to be part of the solution to grow the party and not get dug into positions that create more regional polarization. Um, you know, and it's, you know, good for them for winning, you know, good for them for, you know, for being strong representatives of their ridings. And those MLAs in the interior, they do, you know, I think generally when you have a rural seat or uh, a seat outside of the major media markets, you become uh, better known in your community and, you know, you have to work hard as an MLA and build an organization because that's what's expected of you. In the suburbs, it's different. And in the city where you can kind of blend into the scenery. And I think what happened with the Liberals is that they had a lot of situations where they had seats that held for a long time where they had weak organizations because they could win every time and they didn't have to work that hard. And um, yet MLAs had been around for a long time who, um, you know, basically had their nominations guaranteed every time. And so where's the incentive right. to keep renewing and, you know, revitalize. And, you know, that's a conversation I think the party has to have uh, is how do you create more opportunities for new blood? And, uh, you know, short of term limits, uh, which I'm not advocating for, um, is how how do you create a bit more of internal competition uh, in the party? Because uh, you know, frankly, um, this is where we're at today. Is we have an old caucus and you know um, older caucus. Not that you know, we shouldn't have old people in caucus. There's you know, there's always place for everybody, but you got to make you have to make places for younger people and more diverse people and more women and and so on and so forth. Well, there's a lot of seats to do that with now. Yeah, I mean, it's a great, <laughs> a lot of opportunity. <laughs> great opportunity. <laughs> Gordon Campbell yeah, I, brought in the. Gordon Campbell brought in the first. Sorry, you were going to say something. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's, it's not, you know, there's been quick turnarounds before, you know, to go from Michael Gnatchev to Justin Trudeau in one election, you know, to go from basically existential crisis and will the Liberal Party survive to winning a majority government. 
you know, that's an extreme example of a quick turnaround. But even the NDP here in British Columbia, when they lost in 2001, only had two seats. They almost won the next election. You know, and they roared back um, Carol, with Carol James. And, you know, it was within three or four points in the popular vote. And, you know, they had 30, 33 or 34 seats. So, um, you know, it's a doable thing. But you have to learn from... You have to correct the Well, but there's problem. a difference, isn't there, Mike? I mean, the NDP are a, are a coherent, durable party in BC. And against them is a coalition that can be called different names, can be composed of different people, uh, can have different voting coalitions largely, but it, it moves. So, you know, in Saskatchewan, that coalition used to be called the Liberal Party up until the mid-1970s. And then the Liberal Party stopped looking like it could beat the NDP, started getting too identified with the federal Liberals, and that whole thing blew up, and now we have something called the SAS Party um, in Saskatchewan. I mean, you can't take the Liberal Party for granted in British Columbia, can you? I mean, this coalition could fall apart the same way the SoCred thing did. I mean, aren't there conservatives who are tired of running under the liberal banner and now that the liberal banner isn't uh maybe as sure a thing as it used to be maybe i mean these kind of coalitions they they're they're more fragile yeah and uh that yeah, I, I think you're right well i think the pc liberals uh are are getting um hit from all sides um there were only 19 conservative bc conservatives running this election but they cost some seats for the BC Liberals, no question, three or four seats because of the vote split. You know, some of them got 15% of the vote or 10% of the vote and were, were the difference. Um, so, you know, I don't, they're not going away. And so they're, they're going to lose on the right already, but they're losing in the center as well. Um, there were certainly a lot of NDP, you know, a lot of BC Liberal NDP switchers. Um, and there were BC Liberal green switchers. Now, you know, we're still talking about the margins here because, I mean, they got 35% of the vote so far um, before the mail is counted. So it'll still be like 33, 34, 35 at the end of the day. So they still have a pretty good, you know, they still have a core vote. But, you know, as they say in Shawshank Redemption, get busy living or get busy dying. And uh, they got to get busy living uh, because they can't because the Socreds, you know, once the Socrates started going down and they were eclipsed by the Liberals, they died, like, quickly. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, there will, if a vacuum exists, it will be filled. Um, but I think they have to say, okay, what's the situation now? How are we going to become more competitive with Lower Mainland? What are we, you know, they, they were beset by these issues with social conservatives. Um, you know, with uh, the former, you know, BC Liberal MLA and Chilliwack Kent, became a focus of attention during the RIP period uh, and before. And, you know, it was, you know, the, the coalition was really <coughs> straining to keep all these things together and was clearly losing in the center ground because of what was happening on, on the right. And it, it may be a case where you, you just cannot reconcile these things any longer and you have to decide which path you're going to go. Um, as of 2013, it was still possible for the BC Liberals to stretch uh, 
hold its arms wide open and, and uh, get 40, you know, 44% of the vote um, across, you know, a lot of the lower mainland and the interior where they won almost all their seats. Um, right. Now it's down to 35. So it's, they've got a, you know, I, the narrative is that, you know, it's the social conservative guys that have cost votes in the center ground. That may be part of it. Um, I'm not arguing that, but I think there's also a point where a lot of the votes are traditionally BC Liberal um, supporters, like 55 plus voters. I don't think they were there this time for the BC Liberals either. And I think I think that's Premier Horgan really um, did a good job in, in in recruiting a lot of those voters over to the NDP side as well. So, you know, I think they need to take time to look at, um, you know, not overreact to it, but have a, a smart plan that considers, okay, how do we rebuild this? How, what does our coalition to win next time look like? This is maybe wrong because I view this from a distance, Mike, but Gordon Campbell brought in the first carbon tax in Canada long before it even became a, uh, anything more than oily, the spot at the federal level. Um, and in later, in the more recent years, most of the talk I hear from the BC government is about resource extraction and resource development from the Liberal government in BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, have the Liberals found themselves on the wrong side of the environmental issue in BC? Well, it's, uh, yes, Gordon Campbell brought in the first carbon tax and um, arguably that was the key to the 2009 election because the NDP were split. One side of the NDP wanted to fight well, they actually did campaign against it uh, because they saw it as a, you know, an affordability issue. Um, right. But guys like David Suzuki came out and blasted them. So it created a lot of internal disharmony with the NDP. They, they subsequently embraced the carbon tax and supported it leading into 2013. And um, Premier Clark maintained support for the carbon tax. However, under her administration, they never increased it, uh, which was a point of contention. And the reason why was because nobody else had brought in a carbon tax anywhere else. And, you know, it was putting British Columbia at a competitive disadvantage in industries that were hit by a carbon tax when competitors um, weren't also hit by a carbon tax. So it was a public policy reason why, you know, basically Prima Clark said, we'll raise it when everybody else gets in on the game. But it it took some heat for it. And I think it contributed to a perception that BC was starting to um, not be a climate leader. Now, you know, I, I think that's something that built over time. I mean, it wasn't an issue for her getting reelected in 2013, and I don't think it was the defining issue of 2017 either. But I think as time goes on, uh, the BC Liberals have not, you know, they haven't reconciled themselves to what the climate issue is for them. And, and I think the federal Conservatives had the same problem as well. And as more and more younger voters vote you know and as everyone gets older um the young person 10 years ago is now the 30 year old voter um you know the values are shifting and you know the uh, the bc levels have to be more contemporary on it now you know over the last uh 10 years the you know the lng opportunity came forward in british columbia as well and you know that's was a huge economic opportunity for the province so people heard a lot of about lng coming from the liberals because it was their centerpiece um, industrial strategy 
and it is a big deal and, and Premier Horgan has picked up on it and LNG Canada is going ahead. It's by far the largest private sector investment in Canadian history. It's a, it's a, it's a big deal. But it is fossil fuels and that, you know, generates some, um, some conflict. I'd say LNG province-wide is still well supported, but there is a hard opposition that drives, you know, drives political discussion and can help, you know, it does position the BC Liberals on one side, the Greens over on the other side, the NDP have been straddling the, the middle on it, on LNG fairly effectively, probably. So, you know, the Liberals have to say, okay, going forward, um, what's our, you know, what's our credible take on climate change? You know, what's, what's going to, uh, what's the minimum test here? You know, they don't have it. They, they started the carbon tax. So they actually have a good place to start from on that, but they just haven't really wanted to talk about it that much. Let's speak about the greens for a second. This mm. was an election that seemed designed to kill them. Uh, as you said, they called it the week after the election was called the week after the greens elected their new leader that new leader had been in place because the previous leader resigned and endorsed the government, endorsed Horgan, mm -hmm. essentially. Am I correct? Yeah, Andrew Weaver. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right? And so Horgan seems to me that one of his objectives for this campaign, which he did not accomplish, was to eliminate mm -hmm. the Green Party from the, uh, from the table. How did, they, there, was it, how did they survive? Was it just the appeal of their new leader who seemed to have a good campaign? Well, I think they had a lot of uh, sympathy because you know, they were dealt a pretty crummy hand, you know, of not only uh, as an election called a week after their leaders elected, um, and they had an agreement which they'd worked in good faith with the government on that was basically thrown out the window. As you say, the former leader came out and campaigns for the NDP. So I think, you know, Sonia Fersenow, you know, she, I think she rose to the occasion. She had a very good debate performance. Um, she had a pretty good message throughout the campaign. And, you know, they, they gave up a seat in Victoria to the NDP, but they, they very importantly gained a seat on the Lower Mainland uh, in West Vancouver, Sea to Sky, which um, the federal liberals hold federally, which is basically part of West Vancouver up the Sea to Sky corridor to Whistler and Pemberton. And that is a seat that um, is very well aligned with Green Message. Obviously, they just elected a Green MLA. Um, it was a matter of time, probably, before the Greens elected there. So at their time probably came a bit earlier than people expected. Um, so I think that is a major accomplishment. And they retain official party status as well. Um, <coughs> and, you know, I think first to know will be a very different leader than Weaver. Uh, with Weaver and Horgan, I think a lot of their kind of um, cooperation was based on kind of a male bonding type of, uh, you know, relationship where they used to be mortal enemies prior to the 2017 election. Uh, they uh, could not stand each other's company. Um, but after, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, when uh, there was a stalemate after the last election, uh, Premier Horgan found a way to bring Weaver into the fold. And after that, they had enjoyed a very good relationship. I'm not sure Weaver's endorsement of the NDP helped or hurt because I do, I do think it looked a bit uh, unseemly and treacherous for the, the past leader to go and, and knife the new leader like that. Um, it wasn't entirely a surprise. He had backed off from the Greens for a while. He wasn't sitting in the Green Caucus. 
Um, but it's, you know, it was, uh, like I said, they, they play for keeps out here in BC. Totally. It was and, a very unseemly uh, thing. Yeah. So the NDP were trying to, you know, the NDP ran hard against first snow and her riding. They, they, they recruited a good candidate and, uh, Adam Olson's riding and first snow and Olson both won pretty comfortably. So, you know, the greens are here to stay for a while and, you know, have some upside. Um, so looking ahead four years, you know, the greens could be a significant factor next time. If, if the NDP government becomes unpopular and hits, you know, they start getting into things like teacher strikes that inevit inevitably happen and other, you know, maladies that afflict, uh, NDP governments where, you know, they have, you know, they can't do everything labor wants or the economy goes through rough patches. You know, the Greens stand to benefit from that, just like the BC Liberals stand to benefit from it. So do you think that the two-party stalemate might come apart in BC? Do you think that the the resilience of the Greens through this uh, thing, the refusal of the Conservative vote to disappear, the estrangement of the federal Liberal vote in the lower mainland from the provincial Liberal Party, do you think all this ends up possibly with something like the federal party system with the greens and with the NDP and with an actual liberal party and an actual conservative party? Uh, it's possible, but you know, I think it's tough to forecast that in absence of knowing what the leadership situation is going to be. Um, I think if, frankly, if there was a, I mean, obviously Andrew Wilkinson's going to decide what he's going to decide and everyone will go from there. But if there is a new leader next time and that new leader is able to um, bring forth a vision that's a unifying vision, um, I don't think on the free enterprise side of the equation that necessarily needs to happen. Now, it might be that the Conservatives still continue to... I mean, the Conservatives ran a full slate in 2013 and didn't make any impact. Um, so, you know... But just the intellectual gulf... The intellectual gulf between federal liberals and federal conservatives feels wider to me in 2020 than it did in 1995. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe the gulf between the political players is big, but I, I don't think the gulf between the voters is, is as big. Cause I think a lot of voters, you know, are, you know, size it up, you know, going into an election, give me an offering, I'll make a decision. So especially in right. the battleground, of the lower mainland, you know, I think, well, look at Ontario. You know, they swung from Kathleen Wynne to Doug Ford. Same voters, you know, voted for one, went to the other. So, you know, I think voters are just, I think I, voters are reasonable. The voters are always right, you know, and I, I think it's entirely possible that someone can come along uh, and find the right uh, balance for either BC Liberals or, you know, or not. Um, like Premier Horgan's uh, has an opportunity in front of him to consolidate power, to to turn this into something bigger and resilient for the NDP. It's entirely possible. And he won't be around forever, and the next leader will have to figure out how to sustain it. Um, the Greens right. have an opportunity to to make a serious foray into areas that are particularly strong with federal liberals and um, university district areas, that type of thing, too. So, I mean, I think right now it's a state of volatility that someone's going to fill. Um, what can we expect out of the Horgan government going forward? 
what kind, what's what are their policy priorities going to be? What's their tone going to be in the federation? Well, I think uh, first of all, he's got a lot of new faces, and he's got some. He recruited three federal NDP MPs to run: uh, Murray Rankin, Nathan Cullen, and uh, Finn Donnelly. So, can you just uh, stop Cullen and tell us what happened to Cullen? What was the Cullen was their star recruit? And by the end of it, he seemed like a liability they were dragging around across the finish line. Two things happened. The first was that they uh, they jammed him into the nomination up there, and they have a policy. The NDP have a po equity policy on nominations where if a white male is uh, retiring, um, you cannot replace him with a white male. Basically, that's the, the policy. Yet they brought in Nathan Cullen. And um, a uh, former First Nations chief showed up you know, uh, two days before the election was called, or maybe the week before, and said, well, I want to run. And she had run for a federal NDP nomination in the past. And um, it created uh, a bit of a controversy. And eventually, they, on a technicality, they said, no, he's acclaimed because she was too late to get her papers on time, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was, you know, I think embarrassing. Um, not where, you know, that was the writing, I guess, they chose for him and he chose and there was going to be a bit of um, glass to break in order to do that and, you know, it happened. But I, I think, you know, they could have got over that. But what happened during the campaign was he was on a hot mic and he, he said some things about a, a BC Liberal candidate who happens to be a uh, First Nations, a Haida, in another writing. And that got picked up and uh, that became, um, you know, a controversy. Uh, and he, he had to apologize very quickly. Now, the, the interesting thing in the campaign is that the BC Liberal campaign had two situations where um, uh, an MLA said some, you know, sexist things about an NDP MLA. And, we uh, had a lot of fun about that Zoom call on the podcast, yeah. The Zoom, the roast, yeah, the Ralph Sultan The roast, roast. yeah. yeah. Uh, the MLA didn't apologize right away. Andrew Wilkinson didn't address it for almost 72 hours. Um, the thing blew up way more than it should have been. And then secondly, when Laurie Throness, um, the MLA for Chilliwack Kent, got into hot water over uh, another Zoom call, uh, all candidates meeting, they didn't put that to bed fast either. Whereas Colin's issue, Colin, the minute it, you know, the minute it emerged, Colin, you know, fell on, fell on his sword very quickly. And Premier Horgan didn't exactly, um, you know, rush to apologize, but at the same time, they, the NDP managed to uh, put it to bed. Um, and that was really the story of two campaigns. You know, one campaign was uh, had had these internal problems that, you know, they couldn't get a, you know, couldn't get on the right footing with their narrative. And the NDP, when these things did happen, they managed to work their way out of them. So lastly, I guess, Mike, what are the federal implications from all of this? Is there any, for those people who are following federal politics and BC has become an increasingly interesting place to follow federal politics in, over the last couple of decades, um, what are, is this a big boost for the NDP in British Columbia? Is this a... Uh, a setback for liberals or conservatives? Are there anything in the demographics that are underlying these changes that federal parties need to be aware about? 
What do you see coming out of this federally? Well, I think uh, the federal conservatives and the BC liberals have a similar challenge. And um, it sounds like Aaron O'Toole is trying to do things a little differently um, compared to his predecessor. But I think that's one lesson is in the win in the lower mainland, um, you know, you have to come up with a certain type of formula that we now know what doesn't work. Um, and if the conservatives want to challenge the federal liberals in the lower mainland, they're going to have to um, create a broader appeal. You know, uh, I think for the center-right parties in Canada, um, you know, they've been their available pool of voters have been shrinking unless they find a way to create a new dynamic, frankly, like Doug Ford did. Now, partly it's when the government's unpopular, you're going to benefit from that. So, um, yeah, certainly that helps. Uh, but in terms of federal implications, the federal NDP, I'm not sure they really benefit from this. I don't think this is an endorsement of, I think it's more of an endorsement of John Horgan's government and John Horgan, the premier, than it is the NDP brand. Um, right. Also, uh, typically in British Columbia, when BC NDP governments become unpopular, it does hurt the federal NDP brand. Um, in the past, uh, like in the 90s, when the NDP were in power for 10 years, uh, the federal NDP were decimated in British Columbia. And they only came back once uh, Gordon Campbell was in power. So if Oregon remains popular, great for the federal NDP. But if he doesn't, um, you know, then it might be tarnished a little. I thought the federal NDP actually overperformed in the last election out here. And uh, thanks to Jagmeet's kind of late surge, they managed to win more seats than they probably would have got at the outset of the campaign. So um, as far as uh, Justin Trudeau's Liberals go, I think the results, if anything, maybe affirm their approach um, in the lower mainland. You know, I think uh, I don't think they would be particularly concerned by these results whatsoever. Because they share a lot of voters with Horgan, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe if there's one thing I'd be concerned about is just whether the Greens, there's a, a an increasing appetite for the Greens, you know, and that they peel off some more voters, especially among young people. Um, that might be a, a concern, especially in that riding of West Vancouver up to Whistler that the federal liberals hold. You know, the, that is a type of riding that the Greens could potentially get a foothold in federally. Um, but, you know... Can I ask uh, you a personal uh, question? Yeah. When you were... At the end of the twenty, at the end of the twenty seventeen campaign, when you and the NDP were trying to get the Green Party support for your government, did you view that kind of existentially in the sense that I mean that choice that the Greens were going to make, whether they were going to side with the Liberal Party or with the NDP, did you see that as something that was going to have long term ramifications for BC politics? That choice. Well, first of all, at that time, when we were negotiating with the Greens, um, we did a very in-depth analysis of their platform. And we found a lot of commonality. And uh, I think there was, we actually put a, a plan together um, uh, how the Greens could work with us in government, which I thought was credible. And, um, you know, I thought that, you know, would have been an interesting new direction. Uh, too little, too late. Um, the kind of thinking we put in post-election in 2017 to try to salvage the government 
we should have done before the election. And so, you know, I do think, um, I don't think it's an existential crisis. I think it's um, basically there need, there will be a vehicle uh, somehow in this province that's going to strive for 40% or more of the vote. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to have to either go to the right or go to the center or, or you know, there's got to be some type of recipe. And that's, you know, that vacuum will be filled by, by some vehicle. And, you know, going forward, it might have to include voters who, you know, are voting green, you know, and that, that might mean a review of a lot of the policies there. So, so yeah, I don't, I think it's just politics. I think it's like, you know, leadership, policy, <laughs> it all go, it all goes in the blender, you know, and yeah. you figure it out. I, I'm, you know, sure there's demographic change as well that it has an impact on it, but you know, get busy living or get busy dying. So based on what you saw in BC over the last uh, six weeks or month, would you advise Justin Trudeau to pull the plug and go? Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. Here's the thing. The NDP in BC would not have called the election if they thought that um, the BC Liberal leader uh, could win. And, and they, they decided my view is that they decided that there's no way this guy can beat us. Um, and they were right. Um, federally, I'm not sure you can say that about O'Toole. You know, I, I think he's an unknown quantity. Um, he's just been elected. I think he's already charting some strategic area, whether or not it works. I don't know. I mean, Justin has got a, a gap on him, but it's a different type of situation than it is in BC, I think. Um, I don't think, uh, I mean, the Trudeau government has a lot higher negatives than the BC NDP government have here. And they're also not as fresh. So is the time, it might be better now than later, but I wouldn't say it's, uh, you know, I would say it'd be unpredictable you know, if they went now. Right. Let's move lastly to something predictable. Who's going to win the American presidency next week? Well, I, Biden. Um, All right. I there we go. Else. That's what I needed to hear uh, you say. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, this, you talk about existential crisis, you know, like it's, um, this is the, the worst political situation in my lifetime. And uh, For sure. uh, I think Canadians are mostly united on this. But, uh, uh, boy, I tell you, if he doesn't pull it Not off, on the hurly-burly. Not on the hurly-burly. This is still a controversial topic on the panel. Mike McConnell, <laughs> thanks so much for this. This was awesome. And uh, nobody better than you could have walked people through what happened in BC. So thank you for taking the time to do it. And for people that were interested in this, Mike publishes regularly at that rosedeer.blog and uh, great insights about what's going on in politics, both in BC and federally. So check that out on a regular basis. Mike, I look forward to a non-COVID time when we can have a, a drink together. Great. Thanks, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, take care. Thanks. Last week, 
We told you about all the savage mockery that erupted 25 years ago when the government announced it intended to privatize CN. It was sort of frightening for those of us on the inside, I don't mind telling you, because there was a reason for all that ridicule. CN wasn't just the biggest and oldest crown corporation of them all. It was a caricature of a crown corporation. For years, government had insisted that CN must perform like a normal profit-making business. That is, as long as it also agreed to buy its trains from companies in the ridings of certain cabinet ministers and buy steel rails from factories and certain other ridings and keep running money-losing lines in politically sensitive parts of the country. No politician wants layoffs, so CN wasn't allowed to cut costs even when it was bleeding money. Politicians prefer patronage to competition, so CN's contracting was hamstrung. You get the idea. CN delicately referred to it as imposed public duties for which the company received no compensation. The result was a giant hobbled company that cost taxpayers billions in multiple bailouts, a chronic political problem that was created by politicians, then handed down from one government to the next. Ultimately, the national debt forced the government to make tough decisions. On November 17, 1995, Ottawa privatized CN. It wasn't just the biggest IPO in Canadian history. It was the biggest single transaction, period. $2.25 billion in new shares. Those original shares grew, to put it mildly. Today, CN is worth nearly $100 billion. It's the model of an efficient, competitive, world-class company. It's been quite a ride, and we'll tell you more about it as the anniversary approaches. Well, if you're ever in Austin, Texas, a little run down on your soul, I'm going to tell you the name of a man to see, and I'm going to tell you right where to go. He's working in capital salary, and he's sewing in the back of the place. He's old Charlie Dunn, the little frail one, with a smile and a leathery face. Charlie Dunn, he's the one that you see. Charlie Dunn, boots that are on your feet And it makes Charlie real pleased to see him walking with ease Charlie Dunn, he's the one to see Well there you go, that's a little snippet of the great Jerry Jeff Walker He's very well known for having popularized songs by some other great Texas writers, L.A. Freeway and Desperados Waiting for the Train by Guy Clark and Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother by Ray Wiley Hubbard. But his own songs, like his famous Bojangles, tended to be much like Charlie Dunn there. Little personal portraits, very based on his gypsy song man experiences of traveling around the country and meeting people and writing about them. Jerry Jeff died last Friday night. And uh, that's a landmark for me, and I've been listening to a lot of his music since. Hey, Scott, Jenny, great to have you here on the panel. How are you Hi, today? Good. Hey, guys. How so, are you doing? I'm doing okay, but the, the Jerry Jeff news does get you down, and that was a beautiful little tribute, Dave. Um, you and I have um, killed many a bottle of Lemon Heart, listened to L.A. Freeway, which is my favorite tune by him, which cover of Guy Clark. But I just want to say I have four, exactly four, major regrets in my life. Two concern women, one concerns politics, and the fourth concerns not going to Saskatchewan with you when you guys recruited Jerry Jeff Walker and got him to come up and play like in your buddy's backyard. And I, I can't yeah. even remember yeah. what it is now that 
conflicted me out and made it impossible for me to go. But since it wasn't the birth of one of my children, I can't imagine why <laughs> I wasn't there. And that ranks as my, my fourth great regret. And it now will be a permanent regret since there's no way to possibly remedy it. So uh, RIP, Jerry, Jeff, we loved you. That was a magical day that I can't believe ever even happened to me. This guy named Carl Fix, who's a great philanthropist in Regina, uh, as a fundraiser, brought Jerry Jeff a few years ago to literally his backyard. So I got to see Jerry Jeff with a few hundred people in somebody's backyard. It was, uh, it was just perfect, just amazingly intimate little experience. So people tend to come to this show for politics, so maybe we should get on to that. And Jenny doesn't seem to know that <laughs> much about Jerry Jeff. She doesn't want to be drawn into another one of these music controversies that uh, she doesn't really care about. Um, I love, I love Jenny, music. I just... Uh, sorry. No, go ahead. You love music, I and? No, I love, I love music. I just... I didn't realize what Jerry Jeff, what he wrote. So um, anyway, so right. go ahead. You were asking me a question. I was going to ask you how you feel about the by-elections last night. Well, your friend listen, Melissa should have run in York Center. Jesus, she'd eh? be a, she'd be an MP this morning. Um, right. I, listen, I don't disagree with that. Um, this is the great thing about by-elections. <laughs> if regardless of what the outcome is, you can always spin it uh, your way, and uh, everyone reads way too much into by-elections. I. Uh, uh, good or bad, uh, I think that at the end of the day, is a win. A win is a win. So the Liberals won. I think that everyone can try to read in how close they were. Turnout was uh, extremely low. But I, I would just say to all the Conservatives that are reading into uh, uh, York Centre, let's not forget uh, the uh, 2013 uh, Brandon by-election, which I know the two of us have talked about on the pod and privately as well. Um, uh, that's my, you know, my great Hutterite Jesus uh, story. Uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, by-elections, uh, everyone's going to read too much into them, but at the end of the day, the Liberals got two wins last night. Brandon's been a Liberal stronghold ever since that by-election, right? <laughs> yeah, Larry, Larry got well over 50% in the election afterwards and got 65% uh, in 2019. There are no bad Hutterite <laughs> stories. Uh, they are uh, universally <laughs> awesome uh, by definition. <laughs> I, I really strongly agree with that, I, I, you know, with the point of departure being um, that people that overindulge uh, in analysis of by-election by results are fools. And we're going to see a lot of fools uh, rushing the microphones in the next 24 hours. I, I will now uh, contradict that and be a fool myself. And I'll say that I take two things from it only. One is, uh, and you touched on it already, turnout. And I guess one of the things I wonder, the turnout was so dramatically low that weird shit can happen. And so in York Center, there's only like 18,000 votes cast compared to 70,000 in the last general election. And, you know, weird shit almost happened there. Um, but it makes you wonder if one of, the, one of the things that the Trudeau liberals, in particular the Trudeau liberals with the Trudeau brand and with the Trudeau... Uh, energy and 2015 enthusiasm and the shadow and echo of the 2015 enthusiasm in 2019, uh, you know, trying to punch through day-to-day um, -day circumstance on the scandals of that campaign. If the Trudeau liberals are uniquely 
uh, reliant on turnout, that they need uh, turnout. They need a bigger turnout. Bigger turnout favors them. They need bigger turnout. And as you get deeper and deeper into your life as a government, does that become harder and harder to produce whenever the elections are? It's an open question. It's bullshit analysis. There's nowhere to take it. But I just think it feels to me like maybe... You know, they got such a boost in 2015 by getting people who hadn't voted before to vote, not massive numbers, but in enough numbers that it made a difference. That's one thing. And the second thing is watch out for this Green Party leader. And it's got nothing to do with the results, it's got nothing to do with their coming second and all that kind of stuff. It's just watch out for her, right? Like she's got she's got game. And you guys both made this point when she got elected, um, you know, a month or so ago. But she's, uh, uh, you know, she's easy to like. And that's trouble for the NDP immediately, but it's trouble for liberals before too long if uh, if she gets rolling. So uh, watch her. And, and the NDP, it's evident in it, both from social media and any commentary you see from the NDP. They fucking hate the Greens. Like they're, they're shit scared of her, man. Hate them. Well, she could eat their lunch. Yeah. Well, that's been a possibility for a while. Um, I don't. I don't have much to say about this because one of the things I was bad at when I was running campaigns was by-elections uh, in, when you're in government. I really have no idea how a government's supposed to win a by-election. Um, and so we didn't generally when I was in charge. But the um, I love by-elections. <laughs> should the liberals be worried about motivation? Like you're talking about the low turnout issue last night and – and normally that would be, like in a majority government, you wouldn't think anything about it, that people didn't come out to vote for the government in a by-election, in a majority. But in a minority and an embattled minority, should the liberals read anything into the fact that they didn't get a big turnout last night? I actually don't think so. So I, I watched kind of both the by-elections, uh, did, some, did some doors uh, this weekend in, uh, in York Centre. The, the funny thing that I found is no party actually put a lot of resources into these by-elections. So the Liberals as a governing party didn't put resources in them. They, they might have thought they were a foregone conclusion. And the Conservatives didn't put a ton of resources in them because maybe for the, for the same reason they thought it was a foregone conclusion. So I think in terms of turnout, I, 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 I wouldn't read too much into it. Um, I, I think that it, 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 it is a, you know... By election in the middle of fall, in the middle of a pandemic, there's so many things going on. People are worried about their kids going back to school and what have you. Um, but I, 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 it was funny that there was there was so little interest by the political parties in terms of the actual mechanics of these two campaigns. Right. What what the COVID thing is too, in the sense that both of the general elections in the last week, I, I mean, there's mail-in ballots yet to come in British Columbia, but I think both BC and Saskatchewan had extraordinarily low turnouts in their elections. Well, I, I think that's, that's understandable, predictable, but the question is just because you know something's going to happen, um, it still, it has a consequence. It has an impact. It'll have an impact on one party or another more than that. Uh, and I do think that, um, it's got to be a timing consideration for for the liberals because I, I just I, I, maintaining motivation, maintaining like in 2015 and still in 2019, despite all the challenges and blackface and all that stuff, you know, you're in a world where there were lots of people that would say like, I can't wait to vote for Justin Trudeau. I still believe, I do believe, I want to believe. And we talked about the resiliency of his personal brand, uh, and I just think just logic dictates that a that gets harder over time, and b you add COVID into that, where people don't want to necessarily come out of their house. 
I think for the government, one of the ch- one of the questions about timing is, you know, when have you got an issue that also propels you? When have you got an answer that propels people and causes them to want to make certain that they overcome what appears to be um, a natural hurdle to voting and, and make sure? And just a, one last little footnote on it. People have started to speculate about like a week today when the U.S. the U.S. presidential election. Is there going to be a weird bonus to Trump for fucking up COVID so bad that the numbers are out of control that it causes some dampening of the vote? And as a consequence between people thinking, oh, well, it's a foregone conclusion and I don't want to go out to vote anyway. And the next thing you know, Trump wins uh, a couple of states by a hair that he shouldn't have won. So, you know, COVID turnout, all that, it's... It's a real thing you got to judge. You're on mute, David. You got no mute. You got no, uh, there's no, no word, no words coming out of you. No words coming out of my mouth? Boy, I see your lips moving, boy, but I can't hear you speaking. (laughs) I say, boy, I uh, turned my microphone off. Turn my microphone off so that people are not subjected to the disgusting smacking of lips and gulping of coffee that so repulsed people during one of our episodes and sometimes i forget to turn the mic back on (laughs) (laughs) so jenny has been public out there saying that the government wanted an election last week uh in the showdown um and paul wells has now written a piece in mclean's in which he says that the behavior of the Parties has illustrated that this parliament has come to the end of its useful life and we should have an election. One of our listeners, Keith Corcoran, asks us, what are the chances that the writ gets dropped in the next little while to avoid scrutiny by uh, the new committee, the new uh, Rempel O'Toole committee, or just generally to take advantage of political fortunes? Is there still some chance the government itself will drop the writ? I think they want an election. I think they're hesitant to drop the writ, but I think every they're basically almost daring the opposition uh, to actually call, to 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 pull them down. So you've got uh, they didn't want to discuss we. That's been been put aside, or they've tried to. Uh, you have the uh, uh, Rempel uh, Garner motion on the health committee, which of course is is going forward, but with a lot of kicking and screaming on that. And now you have the government that's come out and said. Uh, we're going to do a budget, but it's not going to be a real budget. It's just going to be kind of half-assed measures, and we'll tell you a little bit about what's going on, but it's not going to be a real budget, which is almost daring the Conservatives to say, okay, well, we actually can't can continue. You guys can't continue to govern. Uh, you're going into your second fiscal year f- second year uh, without a budget. It's almost daring them uh, to be, because one of the things that was annoying me watching the BC coverage of the election on uh, on Saturday night, because uh, that's what politicos do on a on a Saturday night. We we sit and uh, uh, and uh, and watch an election, you know, uh, thousands of kilometers away. Um, uh, was that the hosts of CBC kept saying, "Well, we're in the middle of a pandemic." Well, I hope it's towards the end of the pandemic. But there's a fucking chance we could be sitting back here going, "Do you remember the BC election that was at the start of the pandemic of like?" Uh, 2020 uh, that started in 2020. So the fact that the Liberals are trying to put off any form of accountability, budget, uh, how they've uh, handled uh, the uh, the actual crisis, to how they've made decisions uh, that we can talk about, we is almost daring. Like let's have an election, guys. Like I still think, regardless of how close the by elections were or how seemingly close the by elections were, it is still in the Liberals' interest 
to have an election sooner rather than later, because we're starting to see more and more and more evidence that the financial ramifications of COVID are starting to are, are, are starting to dribble into the economy. And you're wanting to warn conservatives not to read so much into the by-election that they get cocky about the prospect of a general. Yeah, that's part. Yes, that's one. That's yeah. one thing I would like to warn conservatives of. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't. Well, first of all, let's just take a step back. Um, if Paul Wells says you should do something, you should do it. Okay, whether that's um, following his political <laughs> advice or listening to jazz or, or giggling endlessly at witty things you say or write. Um, so you know, Paul Wells knows all. So do what Paul says. <laughs> Paul's ego just arrived. Everybody, stop the party. He should be here in about an hour. Um, so. Uh, sorry, little rant there. Um, you know, my, my view remains the same. I've actually quoted you on this a, a bunch of times, David. I've been asked this question the last handful of days, and I go to what you said a while ago, which is um, thought it made sense for the Liberals to go at the end of August. They, I, think the, I think the John Horgan window for the Fed, federal government is closed. And I think they probably should have gone at the end of August for all the reasons we've articulated on a number of podcasts before. But I think now, uh, I just think it's too risky. I think it's too much of a joker's wild. I don't think you know how COVID plays. Rising cases in Quebec, rising cases in Ontario. Um, will there have to be further restrictions yet? Will there be resistance to those restrictions? We're seeing some of that in, in, in Quebec, certainly. We're probably going to see some of it in Ontario. What does that do? Um, I think People don't know the answer to those questions. Uh, so I don't really think the prime minister won an election last week. I think he wanted to exert his control over parliament. And I think that he succeeded in that uh, battle pretty uh, handsomely. And uh, and I I just, I don't think they won an election. I don't think they should, should want an election at this point. That's not to say that you're going to like the circumstances of an election come next spring or come next fall. I think one of the key questions they'll face eventually is do you have a spring budget? Like if I, if I were the liberals to address the accountability issue, to talk about the fact that the second wave is taking hold deeply, we're going to have to have an accounting. I would turn the economic statement, if you can call it economic statement you want, but I would have enough measures and enough projections and enough detail that it would be effectively a budget. I'd have that confidence vote bank it right now. And then I would really, really be careful about whether or not you want to give this parliament another opportunity to declare confidence or non-confidence in the spring. Um, maybe you want that off ramp. I'm not sure you do. Uh, and I, I think we could see that we might not have another confidence window until next fall. And um, I'd be, I, I just, I would be darn nervous about going to the stump in the current environment. I'd also be darn nervous to your point about warning the conservatives. I think O'Toole better, like O'Toole's getting a lot of praise. So I think he needs to be careful not to overreach, not to look at last week as though he had like secured a victory. And then the second committee is a big victory. I just think he's got, um, you know, take your modest gains, use them to maximum advantage, but don't get ahead of yourself. I smell a little bit of get a load of me on him sometimes. And I think he'd better watch that. But do you not think that if you're the liberals, you're actually looking at where the economy is going? Like, are you not worried about uh, are you not worried about the fact that, OK, so we're sitting at just over 10 percent unemployment now. 
uh, if companies start to restructure. So you've got Le Chateau last week that uh, announced job closure. So that's a couple thousand jobs there from their head office to the to the retail. And they're going to be the first of many. There's, uh, you know, rumors, rumors around uh, Toronto that the restructuring of banks is, is coming and what have you. So we're talking about what we've talked about before, the the actual middle class, the people that are making 100,000 to 150, 160,000 uh, dollars that have a, a year that have big mortgages and you know, Markham and Burlington and Oakville, uh, are you, if you're the liberals, are you not standing back, sitting back there and looking and say, okay, well, now is about the best I can, the best it can be in terms of the economy. Because if we wait six months, we could be sitting where uh, we're a country at 18 or 19% unemployment. So two things on that. One is I have no balls. Okay. So let's just always keep that in mind. So I, I, I agree with your analysis in that that is a plausible scenario that makes it more complicated to go later. But because I lack balls, I'm not willing to say, therefore, I will take the risky chance of going to the breach now as opposed to later. The second thing is I'm not, I, I, I think I, uh, you and I look at the economic prospects a little bit differently. I do think that there's a lot of risk of restructuring. And I think there is going to have to be a much more um, robust response. We're going to have a second wave of government response. We had a first wave and we had a, we had a, a wave of government replies to it. And I think we're going to have a second wave of government response. I think you're going to have to have an airlines package. I think you're going to have to have a retail and restaurants package. I think you're going to have to increase transfers again to provinces to support a variety of public health and other uh, remedies. I think the government is going to have to, and the Bank of Canada, uh, using um, uh, using bonds uh, purchases, are going to have to throw the domestic economy on their back again. And I think that's going to happen all across Europe and the United States. And so I, uh, I, and people may have a judgment about that, but I don't think there's going to be a whole hell of a lot of political choice. And by the time we get into deep winter, I don't think there'll be a lot of political disagreement. I think there'll be a lot of risk and conservatives saying, well, let's not do that. I think we'll be back into, we're going to do what we have to because we have to. And so I think that alters the economic uh, uh, evaluation of all those things. Okay, but the people that we're talking about now, like let's say if the round of layoffs come that we're talking about, and I think we're all in agreement that it's a possibility that's that's going to happen because people now have kept their job because they're they're basically they've got the wage subsidy. So that's they've the liberals have kicked the can from the fall to the spring, and maybe they'll they'll push it to the next to the next fall. We're talking about people that the the amount of money they make they couldn't live on what the CERB pays them or what the um, the new employment uh, uh, program pays them. So we're talking about people that, uh, that, that, as I said, have mortgages and car payments that aren't going to be able to live off $2,000 a month. Like what is the government specifically, what are they going to have a new and improved serve that if you are laid off after and you make a hundred thousand dollars or more, we'll give you $5,000 a month. Like it's, it's just not, it's not, this is not sustainable. And, and, and the liberals even know that. Well, you keep saying it's not sustainable, but I think it is sustainable if it has to be sustainable. And so I think, I think what's you'll this see. Thing they're doing? What's this thing that, what's this thing they're going to, what's this financial statement they're going to make? It's a matter of transparency because I believe they have in their head a notion of what's affordable and what they can do and what they can't do. They may feel that circumstances will change their judgment about that. But at the moment, they're making choices all the time about what they can spend money on and how much they can spend and what they're not able to do. And so to me, they've got a fist lanker in their head. Why don't they just share it so that we can all assess those judgments? What if your assumption's incorrect? What if they don't? 
What if they're making individual policy? Like when they choose to not spend on something, maybe they're making that based not on affordability uh, or financial wherewithal, but for other reasons. And uh, maybe they literally don't have a fiscal anchor. Maybe their attitude is we do not have one. We're not going to be able to get one. We can't pretend that we have one. We're just going to drift for a number of months, see how bad it gets, and then we'll reassess afterwards. I'm not advocating that. On the other hand, I guess you know there's maybe an argument made for it. But I'm not sure I share your assumption that they that they go, yeah, well, we won't let it get past this point. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't- okay, I, I find that terrifying, but let's say that's even the case. Uh, do they not, are, are they not, is it not incumbent upon them to actually give an update to Canadians and to Parliament? There hasn't been a budget in almost two years. That's, I think, I what David's point was. And there's got to be an economic statement. It's got to be robust. It's got to have some sense of projections. And, and and I think they're going to have to come forward, like I said before, with new programs. I, I, like, I just don't, I think the second wave is going to demand uh, a second wave of government support and government creativity. Or you're going to see major, you're going to see major sectors fail, like airlines, like retail, like restaurants and food service. And you're going to see major employers restructure and lay off tons of people. And I don't think that you want to sustain that. The lesson of the first three weeks of trying to put together the wage subsidy was get it right early, because if you don't, you'll lose people. But in terms of helping businesses, like you have, you like you have a program already, like a loan program uh, that the government has, and like Air Canada, people make fun of them, what have you. It is known as a world class airline. Like over the yeah. last over the last several years, it is become it is a world class airline. And they have gotten no support uh, from the government, but yet the first loan uh, that this this so-called loan program the government has uh, went to a, went to casinos. Well, that's a question of who wants to take it up. They've set it up as a as I know a little bit about that program. They've set it up as a as a lender of last resort, so it's probably effective as a lender of last resort. The question is not. Uh, it's that actually program. got high the interest rates. Why is anybody borrowing money at high interest rates right now? Well, because they want to ensure that um, that the private sector goes first to banks, right? And so now what I think you're going to see is they're going to have to produce. So that's fine to have a lender of last resort program. But I think increasingly it's becoming obvious that they're going to have to and they will produce something in addition to that. Like the airline sector are going to get uh, a remedy for all the reasons you articulate, Jenny. Like you just can't let Air Canada f- fail. You can't. And, and you can't let... Uh, the entire restaurant and retail sector fail. You just can't. Um, so you're going to have to say, I'll suspend this through some programmatic means that will cost a fuckload for a number of months. And then we're going to have to reassess okay. in, I don't know, February, March, Okay, but to, go, but to go back to, to David's point then, this is a government now that seemingly does not want to have any accountability on any measure. Like they actually like actually seem to roll their eyes and think it's, it's really a... Uh, a distraction to them in doing their job that they they want no account, no accountability on spending, no accountability on their actions, nothing. And every time the opposition brings that up, they're like, well, you guys want an election. That's not actually, that's not actually the case. Well, I think they have to have an economic statement that's detailed and that invites that kind of scrutiny and permits that kind of scrutiny. They've got, but, they said, but Scott, they said yesterday, that's not going to be the <clears throat> case. Well, I, I don't so know. Jenny said that. I'm Jenny, not sure both that. of the that's conservative motions. Let's say, I, let's say I agree with you. Both of the conservative motions have been so aggressively political yeah. that they could be discarded as just politics. 
just the conservatives playing politics. What, what, what was, why what don't was the it, conservatives come forward? Why don't the conservatives come forward with a with a reasonable proposal for a committee to examine COVID spending? And the liberals would have to agree because everybody in the country would think oh, that was okay, a reasonable. But the li- thing what was what was aggressive about uh, about Rumpel's uh, about Rumpel's health the studying the. Uh, uh, studying the uh, pandemic and the health committee. Well, you need to look no further than the response of third parties, businesses, a bunch of the organizations said, listen, you know, there's there's genuinely, and you can dismiss it, but there's genuinely commercial concerns in here. And so, you know, you could have easily, no, that, that, you could have that, easily, hang on, let me finish my point. You could have easily constructed a motion that didn't look like it was just raw bullshit politics and said, okay, so we can have reasonable uh, exemptions so that we're not jeopardizing anybody's commercial circumstances. So no one says, okay, well, this business must be in this much jeopardy. It was looking at this program, looking at that program, keep that out of it and examine instead what's happening with um, with the government response and the programmatic ef- efficacy, that's, but that's not where they went. No, but that's bu- that's absolute bullshit because that stuff is exempt from committees anyways. Uh, anyone that has done any committee work uh, uh, knows that uh, commercial uh, interests uh, cabinet confidences, they're all exempt from committee. Having lived through the... Uh, the motion act- explicitly asked for those things, independent of that. So it's saying we're going to compel them. And the same thing with the WE committee. It was saying, oh, well, we're going to ask for all of this... Uh, for all this detail, we don't, we won't accept any redactions. I mean, come on. Okay, but don't, don't, don't try to say the only thing that would have hurt that that would have hurt coming out of the We Committee would have been the Kielbergers and the Trudeau. So, if you want to, if you want to go back to We, Scott, I'm very happy to like spend the rest of the podcast. Okay, well, I'm happy we. to go back to. But my point so my, is that my guess is you can don't. frame so, these motions more reasonably. That's that. Those are bullshit excuses for a government that does not want to be held accountable. If if they did want to, they basically came out yesterday and said. Uh, we are going to have the same type of economic statement that we did in uh, uh, June, which, by the way, didn't even talk about what uh, didn't even announce what our deficit and debt projections were uh, in the ec- in their economic statement. So they basically said, we're going to do that again because because of this pandemic, we, we are not compelled to be uh, accountable to anybody. And that's exactly what they're saying. Well, we'll and I think that do. I think that I think that argument, that response by the government, would be laughable if it wasn't legitimized by the breadth of the opposition motions. So I actually believe the opposition's letting the government off the hook here. I think the I think the opposition has the moral backing in the country for very serious accountability initiatives, but but they're they're doing it too politically, and they're and they're making it just partisan. Well, that's bullshit because uh, politics, by definition, is partisan, and that's exactly what the liberals are doing. But it, it's nice to be on a committee where I'm sandwiched between two liberals defending the the unaccountability of the liberal government. So, anyway, my, my, po- uh, my point is this: I don't think it's as uh, sealed and delivered uh, what the economic statement will be, what it won't be, what level of detail we'll receive. And I do think that there's an obligation on the part of the government to come forward and say, this looks like the spending track. This is what's carrying us forward. And be, and you know, and they're going to have, there's going to have to be a gigantic asterisk plastered all over it, which is we don't know what we're going to have to spend in order to get through December, January, February. And there may be decisions we have to take that will blow this track up. But I do think they have an obligation to come forward and say, this is what's spent to date. This is where we think we're headed. These are the provisions we have to consider. Um, and I think that's that's reasonable. I think that's necessary. Um, and, and what I, if they don't? And what if they don't, Scott? Well, then they should be criticized, you know, and it's a minority parliament. So I guess you could gang up and take them out. Um, you know, like, will the economic okay. statement have measures? And if they have measures, won't it be a con- won't there be a confidence matter? 
Well, you're saying you're saying there is going to be measures. You're saying there's going to be measures for restaurants. I think there has to be and air and and uh, airlines. I th- I think there has to be. Well, then, if there's going to be those measures, there has to be some more form of uh, of accountability and and uh, uh, it, it basically giving an update as to what the spending has been, uh, not just in the last seven months, but basically almost in the last eighteen months, because there hasn't been a budget since 2019. I just said I don't disagree with that. So, new topic. When we talk about our own parties, we fight. Let's talk about some other parties so we can agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the clear objectives, as far as I could tell, from uh, John Horgan, for John Horgan in the BC election, was to destroy the Green Party in British Columbia. Um, he broke up that, he broke up the deal he secured the former leader's support, public support for his re-election and called the election when the, the Green Party new leader had just been in place for a week and uh, obviously hoped to steamroll them in some collapse the left movement. Didn't happen. Green leader stood out, did well, uh, much like you were talking about uh, the new federal leader. And uh, the Greens held or better uh, their vote. Um, in British Columbia, so. But, but what does that mean? They still have. They have. Horgan has fifty. Anywhere between, depending on when the mail-in ballots come, he'll have between fifty-three and fifty-seven seats. And the Greens have three seats, and and now are relevant. They held the balance of power in the last Parliament. Now they're three seats. So, so it's you know it's 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 this is the problem that the Green Party has had. It had it under Elizabeth May is that everyone always says they actually do fundamentally they are doing better than they fundamentally actually are. So. If I'm the Greens, um, sure, I can make myself feel better by saying, oh, I've kept my three seats and my uh, certain uh, percentage of the vote. But at the end of the day, they're, they're now essentially irrelevant in the B.C. legislature. They are irrelevant in the legislature, but they're not irrelevant on the ground. And Horgan had the advantage of a big sweeping win in which he didn't need their votes. But when you get back to normal competitive B.C. politics, which is a 50-50 dogfight, He's going to want those green votes. And that Green Party appears to be strengthening. So if you look who's, at the federal situation... If but you look who's at the situation say, so da- sorry, David, I'm going to go back. Who's, why does he need those votes? Like, we're, we're making the assumption he needs these votes, but why? He just well, I'll tell you why. Well, be, it's a gift. It's a because gift when, the liberals get compa- when the Liberals get better... And, who's, to and, and, uh, get better? who's to say they're going to get better? You're, you're making all these assumptions. Like, you know, right. assumption, assumption, assumption. Who's to say the Liberals are going to get better? I assume you're they making, will get better. Okay, <laughs> so okay. let me just say this. You're, I, you're I, making these assumptions, but you're actually, you guys are pumping the Greens' tires when there's actually no evidence to pump their tires. Well, I, let me No, put, BC's always, BC's always a even split between the free enterprise option and the NDP option with the free enterprise option having a bit of an advantage, which is why they mostly win elections. So in a normal election, I would say Horgan needs the votes that went to the Green Party because he won't have the votes he took from the Liberal Party this time. Yeah, I, I just maybe. think it's a no. But I, I look if you're if you're from an institution, not for this election, not for this circumstance, but institutionally, uh, a gift you can give your party if you're John Horgan, a lasting gift, it'd be to get rid of the Greens to vanquish them in this past election. 
because that closes off their, their, the threat that they pose down the road if circumstances do change. And yeah, so you have to assume that circumstances might change. But my experience in life is that circumstances do often change. Uh, and federally, you know, yeah, it's, it's, all a, it's all a maybe what if kind of thing. But, you know, one of the ingredients for growing a party like the Greens is dissatisfaction with uh, established alternatives. And I just think, you know, we'll move into at some point, six, seven, eight, nine years of Trudeau will, uh, you know, the conservatives will or will not broaden their base, but right now their base is too narrow. And, you know, there might be some room to play there uh, okay, but, for but the new now, green leader. Okay. But we're now going, you're, you're talking federally and you're talking provincially. I am. Because I'm taking the same about? dynamic. No, because there's, there are two different things. Like part of the reason the greens probably, uh, I, they had profile in the BC legislature because they actually held the balance of power. Now they're going to be just a party that has three seats and everybody was pumping Elizabeth May's tires. You're, David, you included your buddy, Betty May. Um, and they completely shit the bed in the last federal campaign. I actually think enemy Paul is very, she's a very compelling candidate. I think she is, is very good. And I think it's very good for the greens, but I think it's a very different dynamic than what you're saying in, in BC. I think you're, uh, you're, 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 you are suggesting that uh, that the Liberals are going to get their act together, uh, that the NDP is going to need the Greens, and I just I, I think those are a lot of uh, a lot of assumptions that we don't know is actually going to happen. Uh, Horgan just won a massive majority, the first BC leader NDP BC leader to win back to back elections, and he's got a lot. It's a long four year runway. Here's what I'm. Let's asserting. say we were NDP. Let's say we were federal NDP strategists. Yes, sister and brother. Sister That's and brother, let's say we were NDP strategists. <laughs> it would be a fucking let's say they, call. <laughs> let's say they let us into their tribe. Um, then you would be, we would be sitting back and we would be saying the Liberal Party is leaning heavily left for a Liberal Party right now. And the Green Party appears to have got a compelling new leader and maybe some new life. We are going to get squeezed here unless we do something. What would we be recommending that the NDP do to avoid that squeeze play between the, the liberals moving left and the, and the greens growing? So that's where I was going. I was going to the fact that I think that you can look at an abstract and say federally that the green party, uh, you can see what kind of coalition they're going to want to assemble. She's a more progressive uh, version of the of the party, so that threatens constituencies that right now are with the NDP, but you know also with uh, Trudeau. Um, obviously, she can maintain some of the green credentials, the environmental issues, and I think you know she could be uh, kind of exciting and interesting as a protest alternative uh, for people that say I'm just kind of dissatisfied. And so you put those things together, they're, they're anxious. And so I think, you know, um, if I'm the federal NDP, I'm like, let's lock up uh, some of our traditional constituencies. So let's talk more about the environment, that kind of stuff. Do some of that stuff to protect your flank. But I, I think the number one thing is I would try to make myself sound more like the, can you believe these fucking guys? Okay. Like we're the, we're the better alternative here. Like we are the protest alternative. I think they want to make certain they set themselves up as door number three, not door number four. And, that, and that's, that's where I would be. Um, if you're pissed off at these two guys, 
guys, uh, then, you know, I'm your place to go. And I don't think they have a huge window to reassert their possession of that, um, uh, of that option. I think that she's got, she, she has the, in theory at, at a glance, she has lots of potential to take on that spot. And I think you've got to defend that spot before she gets there. Well, I think Singh has basically already seeded that ground. He's he's done nothing but prop the liberals up since the last election. So, so that's what makes it hard. It's yep. it's he can't. It's because they are so paralyzed uh, with fear of going into an election. Because just from a logistical and a monetary point of view, they can't. They actually can't afford to have one. So, um, and and even little things like he, you know, yesterday in question period, he he did it remotely, which I'm not you know, at half of parlor, there's only 50 people, I guess, in parliament. But if you look on Instagram, him and his wife did a photo shoot in like the forest in Brampton. So he's not in, in the house holding the liberals to account. He's doing like a photo shoot uh, in Brampton. So the, 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 the fact of the matter is, is to me, the liberals have already ceded that ground uh, to the NDP. I don't think they can get that back. They can't say if you're unhappy with the liberals or you're unhappy with the conservatives, we're an alternative because they are part of the liberal alternative. They've been literally propping them up through this whole uh, through this whole pandemic, which is where federally, um, I think the Greens have a real opportunity because I agree with you, there is there is going to be the protest element and and not to to, to marry the two, but if you notice in the BC campaign, the Greens very, they, 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 they talked about the environment a lot less than what you would think a Green Party would talk about the uh, environment. They were more, uh, uh, they were more, Scott, to your point on uh, more, this is a protest vote. They talked about uh, you know, Horgan and anti-democracy in terms of uh, turning his back on the on the um, the deal that the Greens and the NDP <clears throat> had, but but they didn't. And in, in, in her speech, the leader's speech uh, on Saturday night, uh, she did talk about the environment, but at the very end, like it's it, it, the, they're trying to if 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 enemy Paul takes if there's any uh, playbook from there, you're going to see them to your point turn more into a, a protest party and be a I'm not one of these two guys. Um, and, and I, if I was the NDP, if, if we're, so if we're sitting here as NDP strategists, I would be very worried, worried, uh, right now because, um, they're going to, if, if things continue this way, they're going to get their, uh, their lunches, uh, eaten by, uh, the greens. Can I throw one specific suggestion, David? Um, um, sorry to go again, but just one very like, okay, what would you do? Like in the, what would you do territory? Um, if I was saying, I would dedicate a lot of energies. This touches on one of the other questions that came up in Twitter for all of us. I would dedicate some energy right now to, to generating energy by getting some high profile people to be supporters of mine. So I would go, to, and I, you guys are going to laugh at this, um, and maybe it's destined to fail, but I would go to Abby Lewis. I go to Naomi Klein. I go to those people and I would say, your established voices on the left. Your established voices in uh, urban Canada, your established voices of the NDP tradition. And so I want you on the team. I'm begging one of you to run. I want your support. If you're not going to run, then I want your high profile endorsement and involvement so I can say you're part of the team and try to, you know, try to grab it. And maybe there are three or four other good suggestions because they wrote that, in my view, half-assed you know, manifesto a few years ago, that still gives them a kind of, we're the ones that are standing outside and apart from the process. And we're going to, we're going to be the voices of protest and insurgency. I would try to get that insurgency energy 
working for you. They still within their world and that crossover green NDP urban Toronto play, they've got some energy and brand value and I would go after them. That'd be one specific recommendation I'd make. Back to the future. I think, I see, I, I, I'm not, I'm not even dismissing that, but I think part of this. The I'm not is- even dismissing it as fucking dumb as that is. <laughs> I'm not even going to bother dismissing it. No, but I think part of the problem. You're not going to make me talk about Naomi Klein at nine in the morning. <laughs> Part of, part of, part of, I think, you know, part of the problem, yes. So they've got a problem with the, the Naomi Kleins and the Abby Lewis's, the, uh, the uh, champagne socialists from, uh, uh, from, uh, from downtown. I think the bigger problem they have uh, federally is, uh, is the, uh, is, is the BC and the ND and the Saskatchewan voters, the, the former, you know, NDP reform switchers, the, the NDP seats that in 1993 switched and voted for Preston Manning. And I think that's their bigger problem. Singh was in BC campaigning, uh, for, uh, uh, for Horgan and none of his candidates, ministers, or Horgan himself wanted to be seen with Singh. So I think the bigger problem, like it's not the Naomi Klein, it's the, it's the populist bent of the NDP that they have that I think Singh has a much bigger problem with. One of the first things they've lost that, Jenny. They've lost that populist vote completely. And I don't think under Jug, I don't think under Jugmeet Singh they can win it back. And one of the first things Mike said to you, from a BC perspective, Dave, right? One of the first things that Mike said to you is that people in the the BC NDP uh, and the professionalism that is associated with that current uh, crop um, feel no affinity and don't have any natural alliances with uh, with the federal party and don't see it as their job to help them necessarily. That's that's a problem. Well, no, they represent for, people yeah, who work in lumber mills, the BC NDP. Yeah. Right? They're in a different game altogether. Horgan um, is pro-resource pro development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything about Parliament, so the two of you help me out here. <laughs> what would happen if what would happen if the NDP found a pivot point, let's say the economic update, in which they said, we have no confidence in the government anymore, and we're going to vote non-confidence every chance we get. How would that affect the Conservatives? Well, I think it would depend on Assuming the Conservatives don't want an election. I'm trying to think about shifting the box. Do you remember there was that period, Jenny? I remember it very, very well. In the first few years of the Harper administration, where the liberals were compelled to vote with the government or abstain because they knew the NDP were going to vote against the government and the liberals were afraid of an election. It was crippling. So I don't, how do you create that dynamic so you're not the eunuch in the story? Right now, the NDP are the eunuch in the story. I don't think the conservatives uh, want an election right now, but I do not think that they will be crippled how uh, you guys were for the first three years of our term. Okay. There's only one answer to that question. And and but like and I've thought about it too in the last little while. And the only way out of that box is to have the same courage that uh that uh Trudeau had last week, if you're Jagmeet Singh. So when and the next one is coming, before everybody else gets out there, before O'Toole speaks, you say, just so we're clear, if they make this thing a confidence vote, we're against it. So the pressure, don't come asking me, don't scrum me, I'm done. Go talk to the bloc. Go talk to the conservatives, and and you shift the onus. And I don't think the conservatives. I think they would rush to the microphone to say something else, and so it would transfer to the bloc. And then we'd see, you know, um, like the bloc haven't been really tested. They haven't had 
to have, they haven't been made to sweat one of these decisions at all. Um, but you can't make that call if you're Jagmeet Singh. If one, you're scared of the election. Two, your caucus will not permit you to make that threat because they don't want to go in an election. And three, you're trying to spin this narrative of we're going to secure a whole series of benefits from the Liberals. That will demonstrate how we are making Parliament work, why you need the new Democrats, and therefore we will follow Jack's path to success. Except that's all horseshit. That's not what history actually told us. Jack didn't actually follow. Yeah, he put us up against a wall and pulled some stuff out of us. I'm not convinced ever, I've never been convinced that I had hardly anything to do um, with his later electoral success. I don't think that that actually led to it. And I think they're making... The better historical parallel, Scott, is David Lewis yeah. in between 1972 and 1974. Exactly. Where David Lewis worked closely with the Trudeau government, uh, the Pierre Trudeau government, got the Foreign Investment Review Agency done, got uh, uh, Petro-Canada created, got a massive expansion in government spending, and then were crushed crushed in the succeeding election that elected a liberal majority government. Um, so that storyline and, 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 and that Ray they would have 85. had in 1974 about everything you like about this liberal government we did had no traction then. And Ray 85 to 87. I think that's the real lesson. But if you're weak, you got no, you got no choice. Like you're trapped. Yeah, the, 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 the ship has sailed. Singh will either be dragged kicking and screaming into the election or the Liberals will pull the plug on themselves in, in some way. Like he, it, it is evident he doesn't want an election. And the only bullshit talking points the NDP have, and, and uh, we've all been on panels with, with, uh, with, the, with uh, commentators in the last week, is, oh, well, Jugmeet was the, he was the adult in the room. Like that's literally the only thing they can say with that. Because they, they can't even say they won anything on this. They can't even say it was a bullshit uh, we won sick days, which, by the way, they never actually won. It was a like the liberals said, sure, I'm going to mention it as a throwaway line at the end of a conference call with the premiers, but I'm not going to compel them to do it. So so they can't even say they won a fake promise from from the prime minister because uh, Trudeau basically said, I don't give a shit. I, I'd rather go into an election. So the only talking point the NDP have is. Jugmeat was the was the adult in the room, which is bullshit. And it's they're never going to do Scott what you said and go out to a mic and say we're into this because they they logistically cannot afford. They're to your point. They're caught for the most part. Their caucus doesn't want an election. He doesn't want election an election. They have no money. They can't even in a a pandemic no tour Zoom town hall type of scenario. They have no money to have an election. They are they have mortgaged their building. They are you know, millions of dollars in debt. They just can't have one. Listen, Richie Cunningham learned this lesson from Fonzie in 1974. Richie Cunningham was upset about being bullied. He said to Fonzie, you never have to do anything. You just snap your fingers and people run. Nobody tries to take you on. He says, you got to look tough. You got to present yourself differently. You got to stand up to that guy, not be weak. And then when it came time for that to happen and Richie showed up with the leather jacket and he was tough and the rolled up denim jeans and Fonzie said oh I forgot to tell you one thing if you're going to threaten to throw the punch you have to have thrown a punch before and the problem that Jamie <laughs> Singh has is like Richie Cunningham he's never thrown a punch and he can't throw a punch so he's got a he's got a Richie Cunningham problem and you know people like Richie Cunningham but they don't fear him so folks we have about seven minutes left before uh, our deadline before the clock strikes midnight, and this is the last pod before the American election. <laughs> <laughs> Orange McFuckface, <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>
So let's start. First of all, does anybody want a double or nothing their bet? <laughs> there is one thousand. Now, did we? Were there one thousand Canadian dollars or one thousand American dollars? I don't think we ever clarified that. But we have one thousand smackaroos steaming toward my port, very happily. I will announce at on the podcast following the election. I will announce the destination for that $1,000. I am predicting All I will right. win it. And I'm going to, because I'm a generous soul, I'm going to dedicate it to a good cause. And I will uh, I will make that announcement uh, to the public and to Jenny uh, on the uh, morning after. Okay. So Scott, let's start with this. Start with this. What's your prediction? And, and describe your prediction in a way that's more extensive than just a victory for one or the other. I think it is uh, going to be a smashing victory. I think that um, the ass has been falling out of this thing for a while, and I think it's sliding hard. I'm not one of those, and I could be proven very wrong on this point, but I'm not one of those that fears uh, fears the mail-in ba- uh, ballots that I think that we're going to end up with, you know, oh, it takes there's slow states and fast states when it comes to counting. I think that we're going to see that the, the board's going to get run pretty heavy. I think that, you know, uh, Trump's going to lose Texas. Um, I think he's going to lose the Senate. I think he's going to lose North Carolina. I think he's going to lose Ohio. Um, and I just, so I think that this thing's going to be a, sm- I think it's a greater likelihood that uh, Biden wins 400 electoral seats than that Trump wins the election. And, and I don't think, you that think Trump he will is- lose Texas and Ohio. I do. I do. Okay. But the polls, the polls haven't. No, I said Georgia. Sorry. I think there's, I, I think Texas is in play. I think he'll lose Georgia. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to say the polls have uh, the polls have a tightening in 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 uh, Texas, but uh, most of the polls have uh, have a slight Trump lead. Yeah, he should win Texas even still, but I think it's in play, which is insane. But I think he right. will lose Georgia, um, and uh, so I think it's going to be. And I don't think that Trump. My other prediction is I don't believe that Trump will. Um, it, Trump will do bullshit and say bullshit about how he didn't really want win and it was stolen from him. But I think that's all about face saving so he can talk for the rest of his life that he wasn't a loser. I don't think he'll actually like dig his fingernails into the resolute desk and be pulled out at gunpoint. I don't think that's going to happen. I think our fears about that are exaggerated. Okay. Jenny prediction from Tuesday night. Oh, listen, I've, I've already, I, I bet, I bet that, that I bet when uh, uh, America's unemployment was at 3% and uh, it was, po- yeah. it was uh, pre-COVID. Um, listen, we'll see the, this uh, certain state, uh, certain state polls are, are tightening. If you look at uh, Michigan and Florida and, and, uh, and Texas, uh, you know, North Carolina. So we'll see, it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting, uh, interesting one to watch. But as you know, I do not make electoral uh, predictions for the most part. Right. I think it's going to be a Biden victory, but I don't think it's going to be quite as smashing as Scott does. And I don't think it's going to be quite as satisfying as Scott thinks. I think that uh, Trump will narrowly scrape through in a number of states like Texas um, uh, that uh, will give him, make him somewhat competitive um, in the Electoral College. Here's my last question before we go, because it's really relevant. Keith Bogue brought this up last week about where Florida goes, because Florida is going to know all of its ballots on election night. It's not going to have to wait to count mail-in ballots. Florida's going to know its count. And if Biden wins Florida, Trump has no path to the White House. And so 
the one way we'll know for sure what the result is on election night is if Biden wins Florida. Who wins Florida? Scott? I, I think Biden. I think Trump. Just for argument's sake. I think sake. Biden. And we will see. And so, thank you both for another panel. Thank you both for getting together. I, I have to tell you, you know, it, it really is good for me to see you two every week and talk <laughs> to you. It helps me. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Well, we are we're, we're happy for our therapeutic uh, effect on you, David. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have it's good to have really good friends in a time like this. Love you both. Talk to you later. I love you too. <laughs> All right, we'll end that. Well, listen. If you like the show, give us a review or a rating on iTunes, or give us a shout out on social media. The ratings on iTunes really help. Uh, get the show around and I'd like to thank uh, our producer Jill Engelman and our engineer Metal Donkersgood for the show and let's exit to the beautiful rockabilly tunes of Ray Martini our great old friend Ray Martini who we're also missing during COVID rolling out metal with Ray early, early, early.